Hello and welcome everyone to episode number three of the 1951 Down Place podcast, your home for Hammer Film discussion. My name is Scott and I'm one of the co-hosts of the show. On today's episode, we're going to take a step away from the Hammer Horror catalog and take a look at 1959's The Hound of the Baskervilles, the first adaptation of the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle novel of the same name to be filmed in color. The film stars Peter Cushing as Sherlock Holmes, Sir Christopher Lee as Sir Henry Baskerville, and Andre Morel as Dr. Watson. To round out this episode, Casey will be bringing us a look at Madeline Smith, who appeared in The Vampire Lovers and Frankenstein and the Monster from Hell in his gothic glamour segment. And then I'll join Derek and Casey to cover a little listener feedback. Before we take a look at Hounds, I wanted to let everyone know about the new Facebook group for the podcast. It's a place to join us and talk about all things Hammer Films between the podcasts. Check out the group at tinyurl.com slash downplacegroup. That link will be in the show notes. Right after this, we'll apply our version of deductive reasoning on Hammer's 1959 film, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Thanks for listening to 1951 Downplace, your home for Hammer Films discussion. Else you will surely meet the hound of hell, the hound of the Baskervilles. Which way? For heaven's sake, which way? The greatest story ever written by one of the world's greatest storytellers, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's classic masterpiece of mystery, suspense, and horror, The Hound of the Baskervilles. Some revolting sacrificial rite has been performed. Depths a human being can sink to. What human being could have done this? That is precisely what I intend to find out. But how can you be so certain that somebody took one of the bishop's spiders and deliberately placed it in Sir Henry's room? That it wasn't in the luggage he brought from South Africa? Elementary, my dear Watson. There are no tarantulas in South Africa. What do you want me to do? Identify anything I may find. Strange things are to be found on the moor. Like this, for instance. Why? You thought it was going to be easy, didn't you? Didn't you? You won't be the first of your family who thought that. And you won't be the first to die because of it. in the intro of this episode that the film that we're doing this time around, The Hound of the Baskervilles by Hammer, was the first color adaptation of this Sherlock Holmes story, but it's also known for another first. 
This is the first Hammer horror film to have been set entirely in Britain. All their other films up until this point, the horror films specifically, all took place in other cities, other locales, other countries. This is the first time that they told a homegrown story in their homeland. I think that's kind of a a little tidbit to throw in there since we're talking about The Hound of the Baskervilles from 1959. (laughs) This was the first time I had seen the movie. You guys, this was the first time as well, right? Indeed. I also don't have a lot of experience with Sherlock Holmes. I've read a quite a few, I, I shouldn't say quite a few, I've read a few stories of the original Holmes stories, so I've, enough that I'm, there, you know, I'm looking for that certain character to come out when I watch anything, you know, related to Holmes, so, mm-hmm. and The Hound of the Baskervilles is fairly, I think that's pretty textbook for as far as examples of Sherlock Holmes goes, so. Mm-hmm. As for me, the closest I got to Sherlock Holmes was watching uh, Lieutenant Commander Data do Holmes in the holodeck on <laughs> Next Generation. <laughs> Not, not even young Sherlock Holmes? Well, I've seen that too, but Data was more Sherlock, so. <laughs> next time on Star Trek, The Next Generation. I accept your challenge, Doctor. I wouldn't miss it. Dr. Pulaski challenges Data to solve the Sherlock Holmes mystery in the holodeck. There is your killer. <laughs> I've not read, I, I have to say, I've not read any of the original Sherlock Holmes, but I think it's impossible to uh, be into any kind of, like, well, fiction, media, you know anything like that without knowing who Sherlock Holmes is? Uh, the Hound of the Baskervilles was the th- was the third uh, novel featuring Sherlock Holmes, written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, back in uh, the early 1900s, like 1901, 1902, and it had been adapted quite a bit uh, for radio, for film, and black and white. And then Hammer went ahead and decided to uh, do an adaptation as well of this story. Uh, instead of doing the first Sherlock Holmes, they went this route because. Well, according to Gary H. Smith in a documentary called The Horror of Hammer, uh, he says they picked this story because it had horror elements that Hammer could actually exploit. You know, a lot of Sherlock Holmes stuff is straight up mystery. It's not supernatural at all. And this one does have a little bit of spookiness that they could play up or play on with, well, the hound, you know, the big monster. So, you know, I can see Hammer's attraction to a story like this if they're going to do Sherlock. Sherlock Holmes is generally straight-up mystery, so that's why I was excited to see this one because I figured it would be a different feel for a Hammer flick. And while there is some supernatural elements there, that's still at the base of it all is a mystery. So it's nice to see, on my end, to see Hammer stretching their wings a bit. Well, definitely, and that's part of what this podcast is about, too. I mean, we're not just doing the horror stuff, so we are dipping into mystery here. Does somebody want to talk about the plot of this thing? You want to talk about the, uh, the, the synopsis of the story here? Sure. We start back in the past, and I'm sorry, I can't tell you the exact date in the past, but we see the original Baskerville, which is where the curse started. He was a lord, a noble in the Britain, very full of himself, very condescending to his help and whatnot. And the scene opens up on him and his friends berating a man who we find out is because uh, Hugo Baskerville is trying to take advantage of this man's daughter, and he was trying to talk Hugo out of it. Learn Hi. <laughs> he's already learned to fly like a wildfowl, and now he swims like a waterfowl. <laughs> Shall we see how he roasts? By the time the night is out, our friend will know better than to condemn the sport of his master. While he is humiliating this man in front of all of his noble friends, uh, the girl hears, gets wind of what's going on and sneaks out the window. 
Now, Hugo, being as he is, being full of himself, essentially, and his nobility, he decides he can't live or abide by a woman escaping from him, so he's going to track her down. He calls out the hounds and takes off across the moors to find her. Bounds! Let loose the pack! To make a long story short, eventually he runs into what we find is the Hound of the Baskervilles, which was we're led to believe is the supernatural force that's haunting the Moors that begins the curse of the Baskervilles. Then we jump ahead. We're introduced to Sir Henry Baskerville, who's come from South Africa, and he is now the heir to the Baskerville uh, lands and the castle and stuff, and also the curse. And being that he's the last Baskerville... They're afraid that the curse would come true and something would happen to Sir Henry. So they call in the greatest detective of the time, Sherlock Holmes, and his assistant, Dr. Watson, to help solve the case of the curse of the Baskervilles. Is there a successor to the family title? Yes. Sir Henry Baskerville. He's due to arrive in London tonight from Johannesburg. Why have you come to me, Dr. Mortimer, when you really don't believe that I can help you? I don't think I know what you mean. I think you do. Excuse me. Although you knew Sir Charles died of natural causes, you've implied that he met a more horrible death, that he might have encountered this hound of hell, the curse of the Baskervilles. Do you really believe that legend? There are many things in life and death that we do not understand, Mr. Holmes. Then I suggest you might have done better to have consulted a priest instead of a detective. Do you imagine that I can influence the powers of darkness? Of course not. I thought you might prevent Sir Henry from going into danger. My dear sir, if there is an evil curse on the family, it can be just as powerful in London as in Devonshire. Where will he be staying? At the Northumberland Hotel. Does this mean then that you will investigate the matter? I have not said so. My commitments are heavy. I beg of you, Mr. Holmes. This is a matter of life and death. Well, there can be no harm done by my seeing the man. Shall we say 10 o'clock tomorrow morning? At the hotel. So let's name drop a little bit here. Sir Hugo is played by David Oxley, who does appear in some other Hammer films, uh, specifically Yesterday's Enemy, also released that same year. Sir Henry is, well, Christopher Lee. Yes. And Sherlock Holmes is Peter Cushing. And then Dr. Watson is played by an actor that I think, when it comes to Hammer, Scott has more familiarity with than either one of us, Andre Morel, who was in the Quatermass films. Is that right? Yeah, he was also in another uh, very uh, favorite film of mine. He was in The Bridge on the River Kwai as well. He's done a lot. And there's a lot of these actors in this film are Hammer-ish regulars. Uh, Dr. Mortimer, who is the guy who hires Sherlock. Uh, is played by Francis DeWolf, who also appears in other Hammer films. So, I mean, this is kind of the family coming together to do another film. Just instead of doing gothic horror, they went mystery. It's directed by Terrence Fisher. You it's, know, kind it's, of like, it's kind of the Hammer house players here. At this point, yeah. I mean, Jack Asher's the cinematographer. I mean, it's a lot of the regular players. But it is interesting to see Christopher Lee play a non-monster. Uh, he plays against type by playing Sir Henry. What I liked about uh, Sir Christopher Lee in this film, it's a first for our show, is that he actually had speaking parts. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. 
Did he speak in Dracula just a little bit? Well, it's true. He did speak just a little bit, but like, like seven words. Yes, <laughs> but but he actually had a, a full speaking part all the way through the film. <laughs> so he can't. He actually can't act very well. <laughs> uh, it's nice. I was going to say too. It's nice here to see Christopher Lee. Is he's not really a full blown bad guy here, which is a nice turn for him to see him do. Well, I wouldn't call him a regular Joe, but he's not the force of evil this time around. And he's also not just unstoppable. He, like all the other Baskervilles, have a weakness. Well, the inquest found that he died of arteriosclerosis, the disease of the coronary arteries. A condition of the heart that can lead to uh, heart failure. Yes, I think it must be hereditary with the Baskervilles. They all seem to suffer from the same weakness. To see Christopher Lee play a character with this kind of a weakness, what's interesting, because I'm used to seeing him in powerful, strong roles, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein's creature, you know, these are strong types, and to see him have this weakness was interesting. I was going to quickly mention, uh, you talked about him having the, uh, the Baskervilles having that heart condition. In some of the research that I did, that's one of the changes from the original novel into the film is that uh, Sir Henry did not have a heart condition in the book. And I wanted to ask Casey about that because, you know, he's more familiar with, with it than we are. There are some changes in here, and I was going to ask about the heart. Uh, the tarantula is new, and you see yeah. the tarantula in the trailer. Uh, at one point, there's an attempt made on his life via a tarantula, which isn't normally a very poisonous spider anyway, but, I mean, it looks scary. Exactly, and I, you know, really, essentially, that's. I think that's the whole purpose of this being here is is that it looks scary, mm-hmm. and at the time, you know, not everybody is going to know that they're not poisonous because right. the knowledge isn't at your fingertips like it is today and whatnot. So at the time, it's Hammer doing what Hammer does and putting some scares in there into what would normally be just a straight up mystery. And I think in the film later, doesn't Sherlock say at one point that you know tarantulas really aren't that poisonous anyway, but. Yeah. Isn't that acknowledged at one point later in the film? Because Sherlock Holmes seems to know everything, as he should. He's Sherlock Holmes, but uh, yeah, he's kind of like a walking Wikipedia in this film. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that is true to character, though. And that's something else I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I was talking with Brenda about this, and I think Scott and I were talking about this as well. This Sherlock seems very OCD, almost kind of. Like, I called him autistic at one point. He seems very, I don't know, he has no sense of personal space. He's just very in there all the time, knowing everything. Oh, very much so. Because (laughs) uh, in today's movies with uh, Robert Downey Jr., we see Sherlock Holmes, and he's he's eccentric, but he's more of a weirdo type of playboy slash drunkard slash, you know, doing his pit fighting and stuff like that. And the the actual (laughs) Arthur Conan Doyle, uh, Sherlock Holmes, he is very, you could almost say he's autistic to an extent because he doesn't, he has an encyclopedic knowledge of anything and everything that he puts his mind to. He knows all the little details. He works until he knows those details. And with that being eccentric, he's got no personal boundaries because he doesn't care about personal boundaries. I wouldn't say, I was going to say he doesn't care about people, but that's not necessarily the case. I mean, he does care about people, but if you would put him in a modern analogy, he's very much like Sheldon Cooper on Big Bang Theory. <laughs> wow, that's an interesting um, take on that. I, but I, I definitely can see it. He's smarter than all of us. He's very smart. And with that knowledge, social mores went out the window. He didn't learn those because he didn't have room for them. <laughs> 
One question I have for you, Casey, since you have read the books, the one rumor that I've always heard is that Sherlock Holmes used drugs. And that was part of the reason why he was kind of a little off as well. Now, that wasn't touched on at all in the movie, but is that part of his character as well? You know, I've heard that from time to time, too. I haven't read enough to know, to say definitively that, yes, he does or doesn't. But I've heard um, opium's always been a part of his character from what I've heard. Yes, mm-hmm. that's what I've heard as well. So, and it really wouldn't surprise me either. There was talk in one of the stories I read that, you know, that he had so much knowledge in his head that he's afraid that he'd have to unlearn something to make room for learning something else. So by extension, you could see that character going into things like opium and drug use in the mind-expanding sense. That would be my take on it. Well, none of that's touched on in the film. I mean, I, and I could see that. I mean, we're talking 1959, you know, and Hammer's still very concerned with the uh, British film censors and wanting to make sure that the film can, can go out. And Hammer's already on their radar now because of Frankenstein, because of Dracula. So I can see wanting to shy away from showing drug use. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can imagine that when they pass that script off to whoever has to st- sign off on it, they didn't want to put that in there and give them any reason to shut down a production uh, that was originally intended to be part of a series. I mean, there was talk of doing more than one Sherlock Holmes film, but unfortunately, after a, a disappointing reception, uh, Hammer, well, changed their mind. And, you know, that, uh, again, speaks to Hammer's business sense. You know, they didn't make a lot of money at the time, so uh, let's move on and do something else. Yeah. Which, that's not to say, though, that Cushing didn't go on to do more Sherlock Holmes. I mean, he went on to play Sherlock on TV in a, in a series for the BBC. And Christopher Lee himself played Sherlock Holmes twice. Really, though, that's um, testament to how Hammer made films. We see movies, you know, they talk about movies being in the development stage for two years, and we're already hearing about it, and they're working on it for two years, and then they're going to film for six months, and then they've got a year of editing, and then it's finally put together, and it starts screening to test audiences, and then the de-reshoots and stuff like that. That's how it is today. So an average movie today is probably, you know, you could say safely four years on an average Hollywood blockbuster. Hammer churned out movies like it was no tomorrow. They had all these people that worked for them consistently. All these actors, Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee, they knew the business. They knew what they were doing. They got their roles, and they just started filming, and away they went. And so it's yeah. pretty you know, it's pretty common because Sherlock Holmes, they're going to film this. This is going to be great. we got four more movies we could make. But then they wait six months to a year to say it's not making any money, and they just move on to the next project because they've got, for those four Sherlock Holmes movies they're thinking about, they've got six other horror flicks that they're going to be working on at the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they were definitely a factory, a film factory, and I think that's one of the things fascinating about Hammer overall is just the amount of product they put out in, in the period of time that they did it in. And even yeah. then, you know, this was 59 when this one was completed. At that point, they had the Frankenstein and the Dracula franchise rolling. I mean, two Frankenstein films had done before this already. Uh, the next year, there'd be another Dracula film. They started doing the Mummies uh, films. 1959 was also saw the release of the Mummy. So, I mean, they had their horror franchises ready to roll. So, yeah. I mean, let's finish this movie, move on to the next one while somebody else edits, and uh, let's see what <laughs> happens. You know, but even then, even if it didn't work, like I said, you know, Cushing played Sherlock a lot yeah, and uh, I mean, Terrence Fisher even directed another Sherlock story at one point. So it's kind of hard to get it out of their blood, I guess. And, and oh, Cushing loves Sherlock Holmes. I mean, he loved playing the character. Uh, he brought some things to the table in terms of what to do in the film. I can't remember the exact line of dialogue, but there was a line of dialogue that was not working. So Cushing says, "Well, why don't we just change it to what Doyle wrote?" And then 
spouted a line from a different Sherlock Holmes story, but it fit. So they used it. Additionally, there's a, a scene at the very beginning of the film when Holmes is being hired by Mortimer to see what's going on. Uh, he walks around his little office, little apartment area, his study, and he makes his way to the fireplace. And he's reading some letters that he had on the fireplace on the mantle. And when he's done with them, he sticks them into the mantle with a jackknife, with a knife, just kind of steps them there, steps yes. them there. That's also from you know the original stories. That's something Sherlock Holmes did. But it wasn't in, in the original uh, conception of this film for Hammer. So it's something that Cushing brought to the table because, again, he loved the characters, a devotee of the stories, and wanted to make them as, as realistic as possible. Which is funny, though, that you mentioned that that comes from the, you know, that that was an actual bit from the stories because, from what we know, and we've already talked about this in the past few episodes with Peter Cushing and the way he worked with props and whatnot, you could easily just see him just doing it anyways because the stuff was there in the set. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Out of curiosity in any of your research uh, for Hammer, did Peter Cushing have any influence about what films to do? Because he obviously is a fan of uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Did he have any influence about them actually making this film? I haven't seen anything to, to indicate that, although I'm sure as soon as they started talking about it, he jumped at it. But I, I don't know if he brought it to them as, hey, let's do this. This sounds like a great idea. Let's make it happen. We've got the sets. We've got the people. I don't know if he was really involved in the conception. However, I do know that he was involved in getting our female cast, uh, Cecile, played by Marla Landy. He saw her in a film called Across the Bridge from 1957. Loved her in that. Told his wife, Helen, that's the girl for the part. And I'm not going to try to do an, an accent. Uh, but <laughs> after he told Helen that, he then went to Hammer and told Tony Hines, this is the person you need to cast. And they were looking for a fresh face for their films anyway. Recommended her to Hammer, and you know they liked her, so they cast her. Uh, she would also turn up in one more Hammer film as well, The Pirates of Blood River. Uh, but other than that, I'm not really sure if he had any more influence in terms of picking what story or, or even pitching Sherlock Holmes to begin with. So we mentioned Cecil. Cecil is somebody who lives on the marshlands uh, on the Baskerville property. And she is our romantic lead. And I started talking about this earlier with Christopher Lee being excited about having this romantic lead, this romantic character. Uh, it gives me a chance for one of the few times in my life in front of a camera to play the romantic leading man. I actually got to kiss somebody and a very beautiful lady into the bargain. If not the first, it's one of the very, 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 very small number of love scenes I've ever had in a movie. We have this romance going between us in the story, and I kiss her to show my feelings. I've obviously fallen in love with her, which isn't surprising when you consider what she looks like. In the film, when he meets her, he's very – is he? A, he's kind of aggressive with her. It's like, I'm the lord of the, the land, and you're on my land, and he, he kind of takes her and you know, yeah. and, and, and kisses her and, and, and assumes certain things of her. I mean, we're not talking too aggressive, but there is a, a sense of entitlement – I didn't find that very romantic at all, Mr. Lee. Um, <laughs> you know? No, but, it was well, a bit bullish. Well, the first time she sees him, she runs away. Well, that well. was with Dr. Watson. No, it? same with him. When they got back to Baskerville Hall and he rode up on his horse, she ran off right. into, and he ran after her into the into the forest. Yeah, her character seemed really just odd to me. I had a real hard time kind of figuring her out. You know, figuring out what her place in all of this was. Now, her father becomes very important to the story as well. 
Uh, and it turns out, well, do we want to spoil this? I mean, we talked a little bit about this off mic at one point about how spoiler we want to get with uh, this film. I've got a, a, a couple questions that would spoil it. So I guess I'll leave it to you guys if you want to spoil it. I mean, it's it's a mystery, so we don't want to give too much away, but the original story is over 100 years old. <laughs> yeah. And this so, is, you know, pretty old itself. So so maybe maybe we do want to get a little spoilery if, if it would help to understand the film overall. How's that? <laughs> That's fine. I would just definitely say that there's a spoiler alert if you do want to go back and watch this yourself. <laughs> All right. So if you haven't seen the film yet and you're worried about the film being spoiled, stop right now. <laughs> go watch the movie and we'll see you again in another 87 minutes, okay? <laughs> Or 50 years, give or take. Oh, there you go. <laughs> what was your question, Scott? Now, this was a question that actually uh, my wife Tracy asked me because she watched the film as well. Was Cecil's father really her father? Or was it her husband? Ah. You know, I couldn't say for sure. I, w- I just assumed it was her father because when Christopher Lee goes to their shack and there's a picture of them together, she was quite a bit younger, wasn't she? You're talking about the wife being awful young? Yeah, in the picture. In the picture, yes. But That's what made me assume that it was her father, but I mean, that's the only thing I was basing that off of, too. Yeah, well, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it. I would have just assumed, yep, yeah, it's you know, father-daughter, because that's what they said. Because everybody in a mystery movie tells the truth. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, because what they end up doing, you know, they're working together the whole time. I mean, they could be husband and wife as well. And she was just playing coy and, and leading Christopher Lee into the trap. That does give a different, uh, you (laughs) (laughs) but I mean, speaking of you, if, if she's his daughter and here's the biggest spoiler of them all, that means that she's related to Christopher Lee's character. Exactly. (laughs) Which is even more you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what they say about the, you know, English nobility back in the day. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Not too many branches. Is that what you're referring to? Yeah. (laughs) That's not romantic at all, Mr. Lee. (laughs) Well, it's funny, too, though, because like you guys said, she was was obviously supposed to be playing coy and leading him off and whatnot. And and it obviously worked on him. But from an outsider's view, her idea of acting coy is a little bit different than (laughs) what I would say acting coy is. Yeah. Hello. If you're looking for the new owner, I'm afraid you won't find him at home. Go away. I haven't introduced myself yet. I'm Henry Baskerville. May I ask... Please, go away. My father will be out in a moment. So your father's gone into the hall, has he? Well, let's join him. No, don't. Here. Here, wait a minute. Just a minute. Calm down. Now, why did you run away? Well, come on. Why did you run away? I've done nothing to frighten you. Yeah, we're, we're talking about what's happening here with the daughter and the father and all that. The, the bottom line is, is there's a guy who feels displaced, threatened, uh, doesn't want Sir Henry taking possession of the lands because it's his by right. You know, he's also family. And so he's orchestrated this whole thing to try to get rid of Sir Henry. And, and Sherlock Holmes has to to thwart his plans. And Sherlock Holmes does it in Sherlockian fashion, even though he disappears about halfway through the movie. Yes. Which I I found 
an interesting choice. I mean, I like Morell as Watson quite a bit. From what I understand, this is probably one of the very first times Watson was not portrayed as kind of like the bumbling comic relief character that he was almost as capable as Holmes. And so I like Morell as Watson doing all this stuff, but I did miss Cushing when he wasn't on screen. Oh, yeah. And it turns out he's doing all this stuff behind the scenes, and we find out there's a, a convict running around that knows the real truth about what's happening. and Which you know, also leads to a great red herring in the whole film. Yeah. More spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's from the original as well, though, isn't it? The Yes, so. I believe so. Now, this movie, like you said, Cushing's gone for a good chunk of the middle of this movie, for, for a decent chunk of the middle of this movie. And this movie really did slow down for me in the middle of it. Yeah. Um, it was really strong in the beginning. It was really strong in the end. The middle is just kind of there for me. And I think in large part that's because Cushing was gone. I know I'm a fanboy, but still there's a whole lot of plotting plotting it with two D's and not T's. <laughs> <laughs> uh, going on as they're you know as they're just tromping around these moors and whatnot, and it's I know it's essential to the story, but it's not that exciting to watch. I will kind of disagree because I enjoyed the interaction between Doctor Watson and Sir Henry, and those are the two characters that become center stage while um, Holmes is missing, and I enjoyed that part of the film. I didn't enjoy it as much as when Holmes was on screen. You know, after I watched the film, I went out and looked at a couple other reviews just to see what other people thought. And that is a recurring theme is this film kind of drags while uh, Cushing is off screen. And I didn't well, get I that thought, as much. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to jump on you. I agree that the interaction between Watson and Sir Henry was great. To me, though, it just went on too long. I'm going to agree with both of you. Uh, I do agree that I miss Cushing quite a bit. I wasn't a big fan of just Watson on his own. There's that bit where he's walking through the moors and he runs into Cecil and she says, watch where you step. And I mean, that was cute and all, but I, I you know, I, I didn't spark for me the way that Morel and Lee together. I, I do agree with Scott that the Morel Lee scenes were pretty cool. And again, it speaks to uh, the, the caliber of the acting, I think, of, well, everybody involved. Yeah. You know, and, but again, having Cushing on screen does make the movie shine. And I suppose it does make sense that this person who is, for all intents and purposes, better than everyone else, is doing all of his detective work away from us because we just wouldn't understand what he's doing anyway. And that time that Cushing was off screen, you can assume that he's doing the typical thing that we would normally see Sherlock Holmes doing in a, and I would say in a subpar movie where they're filming you know, him walking around with his magnifying glass and you know, doing his investigations that just aren't, you know, that are cool for a little bit for maybe a montage, but, you know, to base 30 minutes of a movie on, it's not going to work out as well. Yeah, it's not an episode of CSI where you can just kick on the music and watch him doing everything with the UV lights or whatever, you know. Yeah. <laughs> He's doing some old school detective work that just They didn't have the fun. who back yeah. then. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know you say that, but the first scene that you see him actually... Uh, pull out the magnifying glass. What I liked is he was also in the Deerstalker and he was also in the overcoat. He was Holmes as yeah. as the typical what you see in your mind. He he was him to a T. He was great. He looks great as Holmes. Uh, he sounds great as Holmes. I mean, he did something to his voice to kind of sound a little different from you know Van Helsing or Frankenstein. It's it's a little bit more higher pitched and a little bit quicker. 
just like boom, 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 just dropping all this information, and this knowledge. I mean, he's still very well spoken, and he, you know, his elocution is spot on, so you can understand exactly what he's saying. But he is just dropping knowledge left and right, and and doing it very well. He seems very comfortable in the role, and I think I'm not going to be able to think about Sherlock Holmes without thinking of this representation of it now <laughs> i really loved it when holmes rejoined this in this movie when he came back and became part of this movie and they stumbled across him out in the middle of the moors he was getting dark and all of a sudden boom there he is standing in the doorway of these ruins or whatever or a tomb or whatever it was it was and they had a great little shot there it was a very striking shot of him standing there in his cape and everything standing there and then all of a sudden he's like oh yeah i'm back hi how you doing <laughs> and it was a silhouette right <laughs> yeah yeah it was a great full-on shot you're right What I liked about that is I got the impression that Dr. Watson figured out that Holmes was there. It's like Mm, he did a little detective work as well, figuring out that Holmes hadn't really disappeared. He was still on the case. He knew right where he was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right, because he did, by the time that Holmes made his big appearance, Watson was expecting him. So it was uh, was a nice touch. (laughs) How long have you been here? And and he drops... In like to the minute. How it was long? four minutes and thirty seven seconds after you or something. Like yeah. That. <laughs> so yeah, there, there, there goes the the Rain Man in him again, I guess. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, Peter Cushing is so good in this. Uh, I mean, he looks so comfortable in the in the outfit, and you can tell why uh, he really preferred playing this character for Hammer because it gave him a chance to really you know spotlight and shine uh, what he does as an actor. Uh, he seemed very at home with the pipe in his mouth. Yeah. But he told uh, Ted Newsom that that pipe made him physically sick, uh, that he couldn't handle the taste or the smell of it. So after every shot, I'd put the pipe down and he had like a full glass of milk that he would just down to get the taste out of his mouth between shots because he just could not handle the, the taste of that tobacco. But it doesn't show on screen at all. No. So I, I'm assuming he was really smoking then? I guess so. Uh, it's funny. I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. If you look up Sherlock Holmes, you, there's a whole lot of illustrations of the character and whatnot. And, and even the illustrations look quite a bit like Cushing. It's uh, amazing how well he fit into it. Well, you're right. The pictures do look like him. Yeah. It's pretty neat how, how well he fit into that costume, so to speak. Oh, yeah. Spot on, man. I really liked a lot of this movie. There's some things that I didn't like too much. Um, I think towards the end, when we actually see the hound... Yeah, <laughs> it's a little disappointing. Um, I mean, I, I get what they were going for, but <laughs> uh, in an article in a little shop of horrors magazine, Dennis Fisher talks about how they originally tried to shoot the ending because at the end, a hound does attack Sir Henry. Terrence Fisher originally planned to shoot the hound attack by having a large dog attack a small boy dressed identical to uh, Christopher Lee. <laughs> Uh, but according to the article, quote, the trick failed to come off. <laughs> <laughs> and being a fan of all kinds of different films, I'm immediately thinking of how they got a little person uh, at the end of Jaws to play the Richard Dreyfus character in the tank, you know, when the shark's swimming around <laughs> to make the shark look bigger, you know. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm glad they, they didn't keep that in the film because it would have made it look even more ridiculous. I really kind of found the, the dog attack sequence to be a little – underwhelming for a hammer film my first thought when he went over and and took the mask off the dog me and my and my pop culture filled mind first wanted the dog to step up and said i would have gotten away with it too if it hadn't been for you pesky kids (laughs) (laughs) 
you know, you could not, you could knock the cheesiness of this and stuff, but how many movies do you get to see like a bull mastiff in a mask? I mean, well, well good that's point. True. that's true. It's original. <laughs> you know, that's true. Uh, makeup was done by uh, Bernard Robinson's uh, wife. She's the one that designed that. She designed that out of, uh, well, a few makeup supplies here and there. I don't have the specifics, but uh, yeah, you're right. You'd never, ever get to see that. Ever. <laughs> Well, well, now that we're talking about the ending, I got to ask my other question that this one really bothers me about the whole film. Is Dr. Mortimer in on the scheme or not? Oh, I couldn't tell. I was, I felt like he was, but maybe not. It's hard to tell. To me, though, I would have to venture and say that he wasn't because he would know the uh, legend of Sherlock Holmes knows how well he is, so I wouldn't think if he was in on it that he'd be the one to go and try and hire him because he'd be opening himself up to Holmes, essentially, and he knew what the power of him was. I get that, but it would also explain how the tarantula gets from the small village to London and the attack on on Sir Henry. Also, when Sherlock is down in the mine and he's away from Dr. Mortimer and... um, Cecile's dad, all of a sudden the train car comes at him. They kind of looked at each other right before, but you don't see who actually pushes the train car towards him. Did both of them do it? Huh. And and if he was in on the whole thing, which I kind of think he was, and maybe he was, you know, they were going to bring Holmes in and they were going to show how good they were by even outsmarting the great Sherlock Holmes. What happened to him at the end of the movie? Either way, he just kind of disappears. Yeah. You mentioned getting the tarantula to London. Uh, the first odd thing that happens is Sir Henry misses a boot. Uh, he loses one of his boots. And how did the boot get from London to where they could have the dog sniff it? You know, I mean, there, there, there had to have been somebody on the inside, I would think, because this guy who's living in a shack on the, on the marshlands, at least outwardly, wouldn't have the resources to make that happen, right? Right. And you did see that the previous Baskerville that had died had given Dr. Mortimer a sizable inheritance. So yeah. I'm wondering if the Baskervilles in disguise were actually giving him some money and he was helping them. I think you're onto something there, uh, Scott. I, th- I have a feeling, though, that this is something, and it very well could have been something that was set up. Because like, now that you point them out, there's some definite tells that point to that, but I have a feeling it's something that fell victim to editing. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking, too. Interesting. That they had this whole side plot set up with the Doctor and then decided to cut it back to save time or whatever, so we still get some tidbits, but there's no resolution there. That's good. Uh, <laughs> it's elementary, dear Watson. <laughs> Deductive reasoning. <laughs> Deductive reasoning, yes. <laughs> so, overall, I mean, I like the movie. It's cool. Again, I mean, Peter Cushing fits the role perfectly. Uh, and, and he knows it. I mean, he loved playing it for Hammer more than anybody else anyway. Uh, I think it looks pretty. I think it looks good at, in spots. Jack Asher, the cinematographer I mentioned earlier, he doesn't consider this one of his best efforts. But uh, he did think that the smoke machine that they brought in to show the mist on the moors, he loved that stuff. He loved those sequences. But, I mean, overall, he wasn't a big fan of how it looked. I I disagree a little bit. I think that the film itself looks really good, that it kind of solidified what a gothic Hammer horror film was supposed to look like at that point. It might not have been, it might not have been a traditional horror film for Hammer, but it has all the trappings. And at this point, the camera movements are smooth. I mean, sometimes in Frankenstein or Dracula, they feel a little clunky because they're not used to the big moving color camera yet. 
Yeah. In this one, everything is smooth. All the lighting is just right. The production design is top notch. To me, it feels like this is where they kind of got it. Now that you bring it up, it does. Uh, they did go quite a bit to make this fit into the standard uh, hammer mold, even though it's not a straight horror flick. So they, and I think they, with that in mind, they did a pretty good job because you know the the Baskervilles estate was very gothic, very dark and drafty looking. The Moors were great. So uh, yeah, I think that I didn't even pick up on that when I watched it myself. I think you're perfectly exactly right. I really liked the decrepit Abbey set oh yeah i thought that was really cool that was fantastic and and again that's the production design shining through Uh, i think they really nailed it and i mean it's a shame they didn't do more because i think this would be a fun series to watch you know the hammer series of of sherlock holmes but at that point i think maybe hammer was just kind of a victim of their own success i mean when you thought hammer films at that point you're thinking dracula frankenstein whatever and maybe the public just wasn't ready to embrace something else which is a shame because I really enjoyed this film. Uh, I thought there was some nice little surprises in there that I didn't see coming. But then again, I hadn't read the book, so I don't know if those same surprises, if I had read the book, if this movie would not have lived up to you know just a straight telling. And maybe that's another reason why it didn't do so well. Is uh, I mean, Sherlock Holmes is so popular, you know, and in the fifties and sixties, I would imagine that more people will have, would have read the Sherlock Holmes stories than say like today, because today when you think Sherlock Holmes, you think you know Robert Downey Jr. or whatever. But at that point, you know, all you have are the stories and then all the previous black and white adaptations. So, and and one thing you've got with especially with uh, mystery stories, once you know the story, sometimes rewatchability or rereadability isn't there. Although I would be interested to go back and rewatch this now and keep an eye on Dr. Mortimer because of what you said. <laughs> yeah. A lot of times, too, it's kind of nice to, especially with like a Holmes-type movie, it's nice to go back and see if you can see if there's any signs of what was going on earlier on that you missed. At the very end of the movie when Holmes is like, well, I knew something was up at the very beginning when you talked about your missing boot. Well, I, that wouldn't be enough for me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> That wouldn't tip me off. But you know, there might be other tells that you can kind of pick up on. And you know, if it's a competently made film... Yeah, those little things are going to be in there. Those little Easter eggs, those little you know tips and, and and clues and hints sprinkled throughout the film that you have to watch two or three times to see. Well, the, yeah. it's it's those things that you that if you do watch it the second time, you're like, how the heck did I didn't see that the first time? Yeah, <laughs> very much so. So there was one other thing that I wanted to bring up about the film uh, as we're winding down here. This is from the book Terrence Fisher by Peter Hutchings. I've referenced this book a couple of times in previous episodes because, well, they're all Terrence Fisher films. Uh, He brings up an interesting point about this film as well as the first two Frankenstein films and the horror of Dracula, which is something that I didn't pick up on. And and I don't know if it's – you know if he's reaching – But I thought it was interesting that he mentions there's this movement in some of these films that Fisher directed for Hammer in which the strong, powerful male who can do pretty much whatever he wants when he's in a a rural setting, in the urban setting, they're weaker. They have to hide what they're doing, that sort of thing. For example, in The Horror of Dracula, when Dracula's at his castle, he can do whatever he wants. But when he's snooping around in town, well, he's snooping around. In The Hound of the Baskervilles, when we first meet... Sir Henry, he's in town, he's in London, and he's this weak guy who's freaked out by a tarantula. But as soon as he gets him out to the moors, he's chasing down Cecil and, and grabbing some kisses as, you know, whenever he wants. Uh, in the Frankenstein films, in Curse of Frankenstein, Frankenstein is in this small town in, this, in his home where he can do whatever. You know, it's his place. In Revenge of Frankenstein, which I know Scott hasn't seen, 
Frankenstein himself is in a bigger city, and he has to do what he does kind of discreetly. You know, he's got a new identity. He's doing things kind of undercover, and he's got to be real careful about what he does. He's not able to just do whatever. And I thought it was interesting that in these films, we're kind of seeing this narrative device that a powerful man is only powerful when he's away from others. You know, when you put him in a bourgeois kind of setting, they suddenly become weaker or, or somehow more subdued. That somehow society is taking away the power of the character or the, of the main character, the protagonist? Well, I would go with the argument, if you're talking about Frankenstein and Dracula, more so to the fact that they were powerful in familiar surroundings. Now, that argument falls apart in Hound of the Baskervilles because uh, Sir Henry, when he got out to the the Moors and area, that he had never been there, he said. Here, here it is from the book. The feudal setting is one in which the powerful male is free to do what he wants. Once transplanted to a bourgeois setting, he is compelled to hide or disguise himself. Uh, there's like a, a cultured society is somehow emasculating our, our powerful male character. I don't know if I'd call it emasculating, though. I mean, there's a simple logistics there that if he carries on in the town like he would out in the countryside, he's going to get in trouble. <laughs> Well, yeah, and that's what I was wondering. Is that, I mean, are we reading – is he reading too much into this? Because Terrence Fisher has always been – these are fairy tales. I would say he was reading into it a little bit myself just because I think it's the simple logistics thing there. And you could layer that on there and it would make sense. But I don't know that when you strip it all down that it's anything that deep. I think it's just a simple fact that if there's not any eyes watching you, you know, you're going to do as you please. That's true, I suppose. I mean, and, I mean, you even see that in something like The Mummy where when they wake up the mummy, it's because they're doing whatever the hell they want. Yeah. But, but then the mummy chases them down to their hometown where they have to be kind of hiding from the mummy. There's a lot of different ways you could read into this, obviously. So um, I'm not saying that I'm necessarily right. But I mean, you get down to two of their – especially in, say, the 1700s in Eng- you know, Britain and whatnot, you get 20 miles out of town, law doesn't reach out there uh. because that's a long ways. You know, so they're kind of left to do as they please out there because they're, you know, the, they're not going to send the lawman out there unless it's, it's something, you know, really bad or they hire out to a private investigator a la Sherlock Holmes. Because when it comes down to it, Holmes himself is uh, a private dick, essentially, in today's terms. So, you know, he's not an official lawman. He's just a, a hired detective that they brought out there. So, because. As many as the Baskervilles, you know, that get killed off, they already automatically think it's because of their weak hearts. And so the city's not going to send a lawman out there because they don't have the men to spare, and it's going to take them a day or two to get out there. So that comes into it, too, is is the the short point I'm trying to make. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know how to come out of that. I just wanted to bring it up and see what you guys thought of it. So So does this film move into anybody's top five? Not my top five. Yeah, not me me either. I enjoyed the film. I enjoyed it, but... I wouldn't replace any of my top five with it. Right. Now, myself, because we, even though we said up front that it was nice to see Christopher Lee not playing a bad guy and whatnot, I would love, love, love to see Peter Cushing as Sherlock Holmes and Christopher Lee as Moriarty, Sherlock Holmes' arch nemesis. Oh, man. That would be awesome. Yeah, and granted, that's the you know it, it's going to be run of the mill as far as these two how these guys work together with Hammer. They would be so good at it. Oh, he'd be a great Moriarty. I mean, like I said, I've not read the original stuff, but I know who Moriarty is. Yeah, <laughs> and and that would be pretty fantastic. And before I knew anything about this movie, my first thought, 
you know, it's been a long time since I've read the story, to be honest. But it'd be, you know, my first thought was, wow, it'd be great to see Christopher Lee as a bad guy facing off against Peter Cushing. So, but so maybe that played into it a little bit. I don't think so. But I think, like everybody else says, though, I enjoyed this movie. It has some pacing problems in the middle. It's not my top five, but I'm glad I watched it, and I think it's worth watching if you're a fan, especially if you're a fan of Peter Cushing. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! This is, I think this is probably one of his better roles. I mean, I love him as Frankenstein, and, and you know we dig him as Van Helsing. And there are a few other things. I mean, well, he's good in everything, but I think he was really born to play this role among a few others. Uh, he was custom made for Sherlock Holmes. Oh, he's definitely so good in this, and he's so good that I would seriously want to go track down the BBC specials that he played Holmes in and whatnot just to see how he did there because I think he was that good at the character. Oh, yeah, definitely. I, I'm already looking into it. <laughs> <laughs> Since we're at the tail end of this show, I'll throw in here. There's another new interpretation of Sherlock Holmes, which is the new BBC version of Sherlock. Um, it's uh, actually really good. It's a very different take on the character, though. There's a lot of the aspects that are the same, but it's all modern setting and whatnot. So it does change a bit. And this is the new uh one that's written by Stephen Moffat, who wrote for Doctor Who for a long time. And then it stars uh, Sherlock Holmes here as Benedict Cumberbatch, which you could see he's a bit Cushing-ish himself in the looks department and whatnot. It's just a different take on it because, to me, it shows versus what – because we see Cushing as the classic um, Sherlock Holmes with the deer hunter and the cape and everything like Scott said before. And here we see a modern – it's a modern setting, obviously, but we see more of the frenetic way that Sherlock's brain works – I think Cushing did a good job of it, but this shows it even more, and I think it's more in lines of what the original stories were. I'm looking at a picture of uh, Cumberbatch right now, and I can see the cheekbones. Yes. <laughs> Definitely has, has some Cushing cheekbones in there. The other thing about the Sherlock uh, TV series, one of the other co-creators was Mark Gaddis, who not too long ago did an excellent three-part series of the history of horror, and he spends a lot of time talking about his love of Hammer. So. Oh, nice. So check that out. So yeah, it definitely if you're a, if you're a Sherlock Holmes fan, I think it's a must watch, uh, and I think this is a good watch too because I enjoyed the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes, but it's not Sherlock Holmes that we get from the stories, which is what Cushing and Cumberbatch in turn but it does give us. Now I've not seen the Robert Downey Jr. one, but of course I've seen Iron Man. How can you have Sherlock Holmes without a British accent? <laughs> <laughs> Downey Jr. does some kind of accent. <laughs> you just can't hear it over all the explosions. Yes. <laughs> and he's got Jude Law, so you know he can let him handle the accent part. Ah. <laughs> well, you, mentioned, you mentioned the pit fighting in that movie. Uh, the original Sherlock was like a master boxer. I mean, so that's not a huge stretch, is it? No, but it's not. But the stories that I've read, that's not necessarily the focal point because it's always the stories that I enjoyed and that I've read have always been his deductive reasoning on how he solves a crime, not necessarily the action that goes along with solving the crime. Mm. There's so much stuff I could go on. So <laughs> I'm not a Sherlock Holmes expert by any means. I'm a dabbler at best, but there's so many great different interpretations of this story. There was a great. Uh, comic book series that came out in this last year you guys may have even talked about on mail order zombie before which was the uh i think it was a victorian undead oh yeah yes. yeah which is sherlock holmes versus zombies which was great uh holmes has been teamed up with like he's fought zombies he's been teamed up with lovecraft you know all of the holmes stuff now is all public domain the original stories and the character himself anybody could do anything with him at this point basically so he does turn up in a couple of different places that you wouldn't necessarily expect. 
Yeah. And some are better than others, obviously. But if you're into the character, there's so many different ways you could get into it. So The Hound of the Baskervilles, it's easily available on DVD. You can rent it through Netflix uh, or Blockbuster Online or wherever it is you get your movies these days. Redbox, I suppose. Well, I guess a Redbox isn't going to have an older film. They don't do a lot of yeah. old. But yeah, you can find it pretty easily. It's not hard to get your hands on. It is something that is not being sat on by some distribution company somewhere. So check it out. feedback first of all just a quick announcement uh, because of the length of this episode we are going to push back on casey's gothic glamour segment we're going to put that into next month's episode sounds good to me awesome and speaking right. of next month's episode do we want to talk about uh, upcoming schedule before we get into the feedback do you want to do that now or wait till the, well, let's do it now why not okay what are we what are we doing next month Well, to celebrate the holidays, I thought we would uh, do something um, Hammer holiday related, but unfortunately I couldn't find anything. So <laughs> <laughs> I thought we would go something with like my Disney fans might know, uh, Harold's cousin, the Abominable Snowman. And if you're not a <laughs> Disney fan, I'll explain that next episode. Okay. So the Abominable Snowman next month, which means we're doing a non-Terrence Fisher film. <laughs> and it's going to be black and white, so that's another first. But it still has Peter Cushing in it, so we're not totally breaking new ground. But <laughs> but we're going to be doing that next month. Uh, I have a list of the other films we've decided upon. Should we just go right down the list? Sure. Certainly. Okay. This will also appear on the website as well as over on our Facebook group page. So just look up for the 1951 Downplace group page where there's some back and forth, some discussion happening, slowing down because of the holidays. But we'll also post it there. <laughs> January, Captain Kronos, Vampire Hunter. Yay. That's going to be awesome. In February, we put that in Casey's hands because that's his birthday month. Yes. And he wanted to talk about Ingrid Pitt. Yes, so we're going to be doing Vampire Lovers. Yeah, for his birthday for Valentine's Day, the Vampire Lovers. <laughs> Okay, in March, we're going to be covering The Paranoiac, which is uh, Oliver Reed. So that's going to be a lot of fun. That was actually the first film by Hammer released on Blu-ray of classic Hammer, released on Blu-ray. So I'll be watching the Blu-ray for that. Uh, in April, we'll be talking about The Quatermass Experiment. Hey, a movie I've seen. <laughs> in May, and this is where we're going to get a way off track. I don't know if anybody really talks about this movie when they talk about Hammer. The 
The Old Dark House. This was released on DVD in the William Castle box set. This is actually a William Castle Hammer film production. Nice. So this should be fun. In June, we're doing She, which was the most expensive Hammer film production to date. It was all shot on location. That'll be a fun adventure film to do. And in July, you guys get to pick what we're going to watch. We're going to open up the Facebook group page for you to post what film you want us to cover in July because there's so many different Hammer films out there, some things that we haven't touched on, the Mummy films, a lot of other vampire films, just a lot of stuff. I'm not going to try to swing your guys' votes or whatever, uh, but uh, we're going to open it up to y'all to pick a movie for us to cover in July. You need to let us know, though, by May. That'll be the deadline, so it'll give us a chance to research and track down the movie if need be. Any Hammer film, and we want to do classic Hammer, right? Everybody vote for Four-Sided Triangle. <laughs> Wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> but I want to do a pirate movie. I want to do... <laughs> uh, so we'll open that up on the Facebook page. There's a place to set up a little poll, and I'll set that up. Uh, that'll go into the Facebook page probably sometime next month. So go pay attention there to place your vote for what film we're going to cover in July. Sounds like a plan. And since we're talking about film titles, just to address something somebody brought up regarding the film that we covered last month, The Curse of Frankenstein. This is from Mark Leeper, and he emailed me directly. Uh, he said, I believe on the latest 1951 downplace, you said that there had never been a version of Frankenstein accurate to the original Shelley stories. Au contraire. He provided a link on the IMDb to a film called Terror of Frankenstein, also known as Victor with a K, Frankenstein. He says it's very, very faithful to the novel. He can almost follow along in the novel. Sadly, the film is ponderous and dull, <laughs> but it's also <laughs> still very faithful. Uh, keep up the good work, Mark. So thanks for the heads up on that. I'll check it out. I like Frankenstein stories. If I can find it, I'll watch it at some point. Not like I don't have a list of movies I got to watch anyway, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're all stacking up for MOZ. You know, I'm in a hiatus, but I still got them coming in. So I'll slip that into the mix. You guys don't have enough movies to watch anyway, right? No, never. Never. <laughs> it's not like either one of us have any weekly shows that are still on. Yeah. Oh. Oh. Wow. Okay. All right. <laughs> I kid because I love. Uh huh. <laughs> well, we broke in the voicemail line last time. At the end of the episode last time, I said, let's break it in, and y'all did. So, what do we got voicemail wise? Hey, guys. Pedro here. I've uh, been listening to the new podcast, 1951 Down Place. Um, love it. I uh, think it's really fantastic that you guys are introducing. Hopefully a new generation to the uh, the Hammer Horror film, uh, as well as the sci-fi films and some of their other offerings that they did. I think it's great that you're going to kind of expand a little bit. I'm a big Hammer fan, and there's some of those titles that I, I haven't even heard of. So really looking forward to that. Um, I wanted to give you my experience a little bit, uh, how my introduction to Hammer Horror uh, began. Um, I grew up in Florida, and now I live in North Carolina. And in Florida, uh, most kids would go home and, you know, over the weekend and would want the Saturday morning cartoons. Well, not me. Uh, I'd wait for Saturday. We'd kind of suffer through the Saturday morning cartoons till around 1 o'clock in the afternoon uh, when a local TV personality um, would come on, Dr. Paul Bearer, would come on and do uh, two horror movies back-to-back. Now, here's the master of scaramonies, Dr. Paul Bearer. <laughs> well, good afternoon, whatever you are. Welcome into the unliving room of Dr. Paul Bearer. <laughs> Quite often, the horror movies were camera horror films, uh, and it was called Creature Feature. 
So, you know, I have wonderful memories of that growing up. Uh, you know, most kids love Bugs Bunny. Well, I love Dracula and Van Helsing and the Wolfman and Frankenstein. Um, so that's kind of my introduction to the Hammer Horror films. Didn't even know they were Hammer Horror films. I just thought these were, you know, current offerings uh, that America made. Not until I grew up and realized much later that these weren't even American films, that they were done by a British company. So just fascinating little introduction. So it's so wonderful that you guys are digging these up, bringing them back out to light, uh, and hopefully they'll start getting some Blu-ray transfers because these movies are just all about atmosphere uh, and tension, and they just drip with gothicness, and it's, they're just so fantastic. Uh, and given today's culture, uh, with the way kids love things like True Blood and, the, oh, God forbid, the Twilight series and all that, I think it would be neat for them. To, it's a nice bridge between that, uh, you know, pulpy, uh, contemporary horror, quote-unquote, uh, to the more sophisticated stuff that us horror fans like. And I think it's a nice talking piece where fans can kind of get together and say, hey, I know you like this other stuff, I like this stuff, but hey, have you ever looked at this? Um, anyway, so keep up the good work, guys. Really loving it. Uh, I know you guys are going to do great. Love to hear your other home podcasts. Uh, keep it up, and I look forward to hearing from you soon. Talk to you later. Ah. Well, thank you for calling in, Pedro. Uh, I think... Hammer's awesome, and it's one of the reasons why we decided to do the show is we wanted to kind of bring the horror potosphere community to Hammer Films and kind of introduce people to Hammer Films, films that they might not even think were Hammer. I don't know if we're introducing a new generation to Hammer, like you said, but you know, hopefully we're bringing some films to some people's attention that you know, might have been missed otherwise. Well, you're doing you know? that for me at least. Well, there you go. That's what it's all about, really, is I wanted to talk Hammer with Scott. So I you know, talked to Casey, and we created this whole podcast just so we can get Scott hammered. Yeah, because this is the only way we can get him to watch the movies. That's right, basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he mentioned watching some Hammer films on his uh, local television station with a horror host, Dr. Paul Bearer. Watched a lot of them, a lot of them there. And before we started recording this, you guys were talking about watching Curse of Frankenstein. Good Yes, I've ran across a copy of Curse of Frankenstein uh, with the local horror host for Indiana, Sammy Terry, that I grew up watching. Uh, the recording is actually from 1985 with the original commercials. Wow. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, he also mentioned he hopes that a lot of movies come out on Blu-ray, and man, I wish they would. Now, there have been some announcements made. Synapse Films is going to be putting out some more movies on Blu-ray next year. Region and, 1. Yeah, I hope. Oh, yeah. Or Region A for Blu-ray, right? Isn't it letters for Blu-ray? I think you're right. But North American region, whatever it yes, is. Yes, please. Uh, also, on Twitter, Hammer Films mentioned with Mark Gaddis kind of back and forth talking about putting Horror of Dracula out on Blue sometime next year, which would be fantastic. So hopefully we'll see more Blu-ray releases in the coming years. I would prefer coming months and weeks, but <laughs> well, maybe not right now because I'm spending a lot of money for the holidays. But bring them out soon. <laughs> I'll snatch them up. Hear me, Hammer? You've got Thanks three for guaranteed sales right here, Hammer. Which, which should make it worth it, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, Pedro will buy it, so four. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for calling in, man. Hello, fellas. This is Rod from the Nashy Cast calling to give you guys a little feedback on your first two episodes. First of all, let me just say you guys are doing a fantastic job. As a hammerhead myself, I've got to say, any type of conversation about these movies is always going to grab my attention. 
Uh, I have managed to stay away from podcasts so far that focus on just the Hammer films or kind of circle around the Hammer films, although I know there's one that I probably need to focus on and listen to. I just, I really, I listen to so many these days, but I just couldn't resist any new project with Brother D's name attached to it, and I'm not just blowing smoke. You're just that good, my man. You're just that good. But honestly, the three of you, what a great combination of people, both veterans and newcomers to this stuff. This is a great way to do this podcast and really honestly opens up some really strong possibilities for discussion. This is fun and I'm enjoying it. A few things. I made notes during the Curse of Frankenstein uh, episode, so let me go from here. First of all, Curse of Frankenstein has never been my favorite of the Frankenstein movies either. I like it quite a bit, but I greatly prefer, much like Brother D stated, the, the immediate sequel. Uh, Revenge of Frankenstein, I think it's a better movie. I just like it a lot more. I like its pace. You have uh, our Baron slash the monster, because that's what he turns into over the course of the, the films. He is he is very obviously a monster himself, but a very good-looking monster. But by the second film, he's in full flower. Kind of the, I, I like looking at it as the origin story is out of the way, so here we go, full steam ahead. I love the Hammer Frankenstein movies, and I thought it was interesting that um, for a few, I heard mention of a Frankenstein created woman. It's not my favorite. As a matter of fact, it's the one that I like the least. And uh, back a while back, about a year ago, I got into an interesting discussion with uh, with Tim Lucas about that particular film because he champions it as one of the best of the series. But the thing with Frankenstein created woman is it always loses me right at the beginning because for some reason Baron Frankenstein is babbling about trapping the soul within the body this is Baron Frankenstein he didn't give a damn about the soul what is this crap he didn't even believe in that uh, uh, that's where the film gets off on the wrong foot for me and I know I need to revisit it even though I've probably watched it three or four times in my life I need to revisit it and kind of see if my attitude toward it changes with kind of accepting the whole soul thing which just throws it out of whack for me automatically. But that's beside the point. Wow. Somebody got the chance to see the legend of this rod from the Nashi cast. <laughs> you guys cut me off. Don't make me cry like that. I was in mid babble. Don't you understand I'm a podcaster too and to cut podcasters off in mid babble that's just like castrating. That's not a good thing, people. Come on. Anyway. Whoever got the chance to see the legend of the seven gold golden vampires on the big screen, you are so lucky. But I have to know, what version of the film did you see? Did you see the chopped-down, 75-minute U.S. cut, or did you see the full-length version? Because the chopped-down cut is a freaking mess. The full-length version is a really good film. I enjoy the heck out of it, but that chopped-down version, oh, damn, it's an embarrassment. Just curious which version of the film you got to see. I God, I hope it was the long cut. But if it was the short cut, boy, you're going to like the longer cut even better. Hammer favorite films? I gotta tell you, Five Million Years to Earth, aka Quatermass in the Pit, has always been my favorite Hammer film. I think it's phenomenal. It's just a great, great movie. Uh, Scott, don't let that change from your top, from your, your number one position because that is one heck of a film. I'm also a big fan of Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter, and I love Hammer's mummy film. I think The Mummy is possibly the best mummy film ever made, followed closely by Paul Nashi's Vengeance of the Mummy, 
but don't let me get off onto Paul Nash here. We'll be here all night, and I'll have to call back again because this thing's going to cut me off. I know it, I know it, I know it. Anyway, gosh, you guys, none of you have seen The Hound of the Baskervilles, Hammer's Hound of the Baskervilles. You guys are in for a pretty good old movie. It has the flaws that almost any adaptation of that particular novel is going to have in that it's an odd story for Sherlock Holmes because of the structure of the story. Holmes is off-screen most of the time, giving the center stage to Dr. Watson. As with most adaptations, they kind of cheat and bring Holmes back into the story before he really should be, but that's okay. I think you will enjoy Hound of the Baskervilles. It is a very strong film. Uh, it takes a few liberties with the story, but it's quite good and well worth seeing. I'm really stunned that none of you have seen it, but maybe you're all not Sherlock Holmes geeks like me. Well, guys, you're doing a fantastic job. Before I get cut off again, keep it up. I'm loving this show. Doing about one a month, I think, gives you guys just the right amount of time to dig into the films and really, really do your best job on this. Keep it up. You're doing wonderful stuff. This is Rod from the Nashi Cast fan. Bye, guys. Thanks for calling in, Rod, and a uh, little bit sorry about uh, cutting you off there. Just a word to everyone else leaving us voicemails. Uh, we use Google Voice, and it's only a three-minute limit. We would, however, if you wanted to send an MP3 or something over, we could use that as well, and well, those are as long as you make them. Yes, good point. As long as they're not longer than the show itself, we might be able to use it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe if we wanted a month off. And <laughs> there you go. <laughs> But uh, don't worry uh, there, Rod. I will not let these guys talk me out of my number one spot. See, I would never think of doing that. It's not like over at MOZ where I'm arguing with you about Shaun of the Dead every other month. But, you know. (laughs) Zombie lane. (laughs) (laughs) Any movie that's based around Twinkies. Jeez. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I don't know. I wouldn't say that we've specifically set out to talk you out of your number one. But... I will say I can't be held responsible to how your list changes after seeing <laughs> Captain Kronos. You know, I hope you dig it, man. I, I don't. Uh, the podcast outside the cinema just covered that this month, and they weren't a huge fan. So I, oh. I, I know, I know, right? But we'll, we'll see. I, I hope Scott digs it. <laughs> I thought you were going to say you can't be held responsible after he sees Ingrid Pitt, but <laughs> yeah, it's, that's true too. I see uh, Ingrid Pitt chasing Madeline uh, Smith around the bathtub topless that might change anybody's mind (laughs) (laughs) so rod likes uh hound of the baskervilles quite a bit it sounds like and uh, i I hope we did it justice for you man and keep doing what you do now rod's the host of the nashy cast uh his podcast is about nothing but the films of paul nashy and it's a fun show so you check it out we do have one more email that uh, is also from a uh, fan of hound of the baskervilles Okay. It, it's from uh, Simon Hedge, and uh, Simon writes, uh, Hey, Downplacers, I was going to do this as a voicemail, but I couldn't figure out the international code required. Anyway, I just wanted to let you know that I love the show. You can never have too much Hammer chat. You've assembled a good cast, with it ranging from diehard hammer files to hammer noobs who just love this kind of cinema. Both shows so far have been really good, and I don't really have much to add except extra kudo points for digging up and reading that Sangster novelization of the Frankenstein movie. It certainly added to the conversation, and I've never heard anyone do something like that before. More of this kind of stuff, please. And I'm loving the glowing praise that Peter Cushing gets on the podcast. He's a big fan in this house, too. And my wife even considers younger Hammer-era Cushing to be quite the dish. 
which is good because <laughs> I never get any complaints when I want to put a Hammer movie in. You're there you quite, go. You're quite right. The Hammer story would have been very different if they didn't have the good fortune to gain the underlying loyalty of this major screen presence. Hound of the Baskervilles next. I only recently caught up with this movie myself, and it had an all-too-rare showing on network television here in the UK. It's Cushing and Lee again, so you know it's going to be good. But I would highlight the work of Andre Morel in this movie. He is in a few Hammer movies, and he is always likable, but this might be his best work. It is a curiosity of the Baskerville story that Holmes disappears for the middle part of the story, and Watson really takes center stage. Morel handles this task admirably. I'll just go off tangent now. After watching the movie, I did some research and discovered that it was supposedly to start a whole series of Holmes movies that never happened. But Cushing did get to play Holmes again in a series of productions for the BBC. I found the whole lot in a cheap box set on Amazon and ordered it there and then. We've already watched most of them. Told you we liked Cushing in this house, and they're great. The BBC clearly spent almost no money on these. The sets are pretty flimsy and the casts are small. The direction is stiffed, but Cushing plays Holmes just like he did at Hammer, with bags of energy and commitment, and carries the whole show. Well worth a watch. The rest of the cast is full of faces familiar to anyone who grew up watching British television in the 70s. For example, The Blue Carbuncle features Michael Robbins, better known for his work on On the Buses. The two movies of On the Buses are produced by Hammer, and we're yep. back on topping again. Pretty neat, huh? Keep on doing what you're doing. I look forward to each episode. Cheers. Cheers indeed. Uh, man, I'm going to check those out. i got to track them down. From what I understand, some of them have been lost, that some of them just never made it to any kind of permanent media or medium. But I would love to see them. Just more Cushing is Holmes, man. I'm curious when you said that they were lost, were, were they like that same time frame of TV here in the States where a lot of them were shown live? Yeah, I don't know. I haven't looked into it enough to really know for sure, to be honest with you. But definitely worth checking out, it sounds like. Yes, and, and thanks, uh, Simon. I know my wife also did uh, a comment or two on the, um, Peter Cushing and Hound of the Baskervilles. Oh, really? <laughs> Uh, as far as calling us internationally, head over to countrycallingcodes.com, and it looks like you can find all the international calling codes to and from. Not that I want people to incur long-distance or international calling charges to call us, but if they wanted to, what is the number for them to call? We can be reached at area code 765-203-1951, or you can email us at podcast at 1951downplace.com. You know, I mentioned the Facebook page. We're also on Twitter at 1951 Down Place. Uh, and uh, that's pretty much it, right? Yep, I think so. Okay. Our homing pigeons are out of service right now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so next month, The Abominable Snowman, uh, the Gothic Glamour segment, more feedback, more hammer time. Oh, oh. <laughs> Three episodes and we finally went there. And the thing is, is that before we did all this, I made you guys, I swore to you guys, we could never make a Hammer Time joke. Uh You just saved it for yourself. That's basically it. I'm selfish that way. And we kept up (laughs) our end.
Uh, as far as calling us internationally, head over to countrycallingcodes.com, and it looks like you can find all the international calling codes to and from. Not that I want people to incur long-distance or international calling charges to call us, but if they wanted to, what is the number for them to call? I see how I did that? You see, yeah, <laughs> now i got to figure out what it is because i got to go look it up. <laughs> I, didn't have, I don't have it written on the monitor next to me. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows the voicemail number. <laughs> I found it. I found I'm, it. I've got it too. Okay. <laughs> we can be reached at area code 765 203 1951.